Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. The golden age of Hollywood leaves its mark to this day. Perfect example is the untouchable Turner Classic Movie Channel. While major corporations have taken studios over during the last several years, and the magical glow has faded, the pioneers of Hollywood movie making always make fascinating reading. And the Warner Brothers are no exception. My guest today is Chris Yogurst. He's author of The Warner Brothers, published by University Press of Kentucky and available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Chris Yogurst, go to Chris Yogurst. That's Y-O-G-E-R-S-T, ChrisYogurst.com. And you can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, with your work as a film and media historian, and we talk a little bit about your background as well, what drew you to the Warner Brothers story as opposed to other studios? Well, there's a kind of long history there. The short version is when I really first started falling in love with film history, I was I was watching a lot of stuff by Martin Scorsese, and I saw an interview where he talked about you know growing up and watching Cagney gangster films. So then I started to seek those out. And then that kind of opened the door to old Warner Brothers movies. And it really kind of never ended. I ended up doing my <laughs> dissertation on the Warner Brothers. And, I, you know, I always wanted to do um, really with this book. I What I really wanted to do was, you know, so much of Warner Brothers is about Jack Warner. right? He's kind of the Warner right. brother. But I really wanted to focus on the other brothers as well. And really the whole thing started as I wanted to do a biography of Harry Warner and my editor um, and biographer, Pat McGilligan, was smart enough to be like, yeah, nobody cares about just Harry Warner. But if you say the Warner Brothers, more people will be interested. And, he, right. and he's right. And yeah. it gave me, you know, gave me a better context and a bigger right. you know, frame of reference. And based on your book, too, Harry played a significant part of Warner Brothers. He was not the showman, but he was really, in a way the soul of the place, even though he wasn't that type of guy that you would think would be the soul of the place, but he seemed to be the soul of the place as opposed to, well, I'll let you tell the story. Why should I? You wrote the book. So it's about Harry, Sam, Jack, Albert, and what they created in in an amazing period of time and what they did. Yeah. Harry was really the the business and ideological backbone of the studio. So all of this ripped from the headlines, social conscious filmmaking, you know, first to the anti-Nazi movie, you know, all this kind of stuff that all came from Harry. Harry was the one who, you know, Jack had his finger on the pulse of the culture in a lot of ways, but it was Harry who was really ahead of the curve, could see a lot of stuff coming. Um, not unlike Sam, you know, he was like mm -hmm. that te technologically, right? He saw the future in a lot of ways. But really, you know, I, I feel like that, you know, so many books about the Warner Brothers studio you know, uses stories of the brothers as kind of a filler in between famous movies and famous star spats and all this kind of stuff. But I really wanted there to be a more conclusive story of like the actual brothers. What were they up to? What were they like? Because I always felt that there was this kind of trickle down effect of the brothers personalities into the films. And the more I got into this book, the more I realized how true that actually was. Were you able to I know it, a lot of time has gone by, but were you able to get in touch with family members of the Warners and others that were connected to that time? Because it's so long ago at this point. Right. Well, then this is where 
you know, librarians are really helpful. So there, there's a lot of oral histories and things that have been archived. There's a lot of old interviews that you can find. Cass Warner, who I have not met, um, she did, you know, probably the best, you know, to date biography of her family. She had a ton of interviews that she's just uploaded to her website. So there's lots of primary sources on her website, which is which is great. Um, like I said, I found a lot of oral histories. I've also talked to really the only family member I've talked to is Greg Orr, who is Jack's grandson. And I'm, I'm pleased to report he's read this book and he really likes it. <laughs> and he's given me some support. Right. But yeah, I mean, you're, you're right. There's really not a lot of people around anymore. And, you know, you, you go back far enough in this book and there's, there's just nobody around from the era anymore. So it, it gets, mm-hmm. it gets tricky, but this is where there, there's, for for what we've lost in terms of actually connecting with real people, we've gained access to historical reporting and stuff that's been digitized that, you know, people who were writing maybe 30 years ago would have had a lot harder time finding. Yeah, that's the advantage you have today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background before we go further, just so people get a sense of, of who you are and why you decided to write this book. Sure. So I so I'm I'm a professor of communication and associate professor at, at University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. I did my my dissertation on the Warner Brothers. You know, my my research interest is film history, and you know, I teach a range of communication classes. But I really am interested in, and most of my publication, either scholarly or popular press, uh, has to do with how movies and how popular culture interacts with the larger social and political culture. And that's one of the reasons I'm drawn to Warner Brothers, of course, because their movies were were very they made very few escapist movies so many of their movies seem to touch on an issue of the day challenge us to think about something challenge us to reconsider something so i feel like you know this was if i was going to take on a studio or a family of founders uh, this was the one because they they were the ones that seemed to produce content that interests me mm-hmm did you get a chance, and not that it's necessary, but did you get a chance to go out to spend time on the lot itself? What used to be the owner's lot? Uh, yeah, I did. You know, luckily, I, I met a few people who who you, used to work there now, right? I mean, yeah, now the the current state of the studio is there's there's, a, there's rough waters, but they used to have the Warner Archive podcast, and I, I went on their podcast. It was George Feltenstein and and uh, Matt Patterson and and D W Ferranti. And they invited me on the lot a couple different times. And I was able to just, I was on the podcast once, but other times I was able to just, you know, Matt and I just walked along, you know, all the buildings and into the buildings and places that you don't usually get to go during the tour or stop and walk Mm -hmm. around. And it's, you know, you can really, you can feel the history walking through that lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can just, it's just there, there's, it is just powerful. And, you know, there's so many old buildings. I mean, it's, it's it's a fabulous place, and you know anybody. I mean, they have a couple different tours you can take too. So anyone who goes out there that's interested in seeing, you know, you know, so much of classic Los Angeles is is gone, right? But there's so much still on this lot. I would also add the Paramount lot too is full of just awesome historical buildings. But yeah, and I, yeah, I, I I love every second. You know, the few times I've been able to walk around that lot, it's just it's a surreal experience. Aren't you amazed? Uh, I always use this analogy. I there are still steam locomotives around these giant machines that are amazing. And yet the factories that produce the parts to put these trains together no longer exist. And now you have, and the analogy is that here you have these dream factories. They're still there in a way. They're not the same, of course. 
they were from a different time uh, and place, but they produced all of this stuff I referenced to Turner Classic Movies, all this magical material, and yet it's a, it's a different world now. The, as you said, you, you get the sense of history walking through there, but they're not making them the way they used to, or the, the energy, I'm sure, is different than it used to be mm. in those days. Right, yeah, and this, the sound stages are are still used. Um, there was still stuff being filmed there. I know, you know, the, one of the biggest things is, you know, there's, uh, you know, a lot of its TV shows and things mm-hmm. like that. Like I remember one of the times I did the before I got access just to walk around the lot kind of freely. I, I remember doing one of the tours, and they were they were like, oh, here's a house that's used in this show called Pretty Little Liars, and everyone goes running over there, and kind of as an aside, the tour guide goes, oh. The house next door was used in the shootest. It was Lauren Bacall's <laughs> house. And I go running over there like, oh, there's the real history. Exactly. Yeah. It's not TV. Uh, it's movies. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. What was the biggest surprise? Wait, before I ask you what was the biggest surprise you found, I just thought of something too. You know, you're missing a great marketing opportunity. If they're having tours at Warner Brothers, they should be giving out your book or selling your book. It should be. Yeah. So should I'll be. throw yeah, that out there. <laughs> it's tough to get in there. I mean, we'll, I'll see what I can do. Okay. What was the most surprising thing you found out either about the Warner Brothers or particularly Harry or Jack? I'm not going to slight the other brothers, but those were the two major sure. powerhouses. Right. I, you know, th- there was a lot. I mean, really, you know, I went in knowing I wanted to. One of the reasons I wanted to write about Harry is because it, everything I learned about him, I just respected him more and more and more. And he seemed to be so much so different than all these other moguls. And then with Jack, I really expected to find, you know, there's so many like negative legends about him. Mm-hmm. I expected to find like way worse stuff. And I didn't. I just found like, yeah, the 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 few legends about him being kind of awful are true. And there's actually a whole <laughs> lot of like good stuff that he did too that was really surprising. You know, keeping, you know, old stars on the payroll and you know, helping employees when they're in a bind financially and things, you know, things like this that he didn't do for publicity. He just did just to do. And what I realized is that that was something that for for the brothers, as different as they all were as individuals, they all had. And maybe this is part of coming from nothing and then having seeming like endless money. Mm-hmm. They their philanthropy was so selfless. And, you know, I know Sam died pretty young, but but Jack and Albert and Harry all did so much philanthropy that towards the end of their lives, they were given. It seemed like when I was going through the old the old, old press coverage, it was like every other week, one of them was getting a service award from somewhere. So it, it was it was kind of a reminder that this studio really was a cut above in a lot of ways. And then one of the things talking with Greg Orr. By the way, know, is one, Greg the uh, son of William T. Orr? Okay. Yes, he, he is. And so he's the the step great, uh, grandson of of Jack Warner and he spent a lot of time or uh, yeah, at Jack's house growing up. And you know, I I one thing I ran by him that I was just I wanted to make sure I had right. I'm like, you know, I don't I did all this research and you hear all this stuff especially now in the Me Too era where you've got, you know, the Harvey Weinstein's are justifiably, you know, falling from grace. And you hear these, you know, casting couch stories and things like that from the Golden Age and Zanuck and Mayer and all this. I'm like, you know, I did not come across anything like that at the Warner Brothers. And Greg told me a story that he brought this up to Olivia de Havilland. And she said, yeah, that's because there was no time for that. Like nobody had time. Everyone was so focused and, and, you know, was such a tight knit and tight, tightly run studio that there wasn't there. It just wasn't. You know, there was there was there was drama, but it was over contracts, right? 
and you know kind of draconian control but there was there was none of that there was no, no time for that kind of stuff there and i think i think it comes through in their movies too i mean they were just it seems everyone was so focused mm-hmm. um got these tight punchy narratives and it's like it, it's they're all these movies are perfect representations of the brothers one of the things you point out in the book is that the warner brothers did not shy away from people knowing that they were Jewish. In fact, Neil Gabriel wrote a book about the Jews who invented Hollywood. And the Warner Brothers were always upfront about the, the fact that they were Jewish. And some of the other moguls kind of hid behind that in a sense. They didn't want to, at, because of that place and time, they didn't want to uh, stoke uh, anti-Semitic feelings. They were very much pro-American, most of the moguls, but they hid their Jewishness as opposed to the Warner Brothers. Could you expand a little bit about, on that? Yeah. Well, and then of course, Neil's book, I mean, yeah, he really, really set the standard. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, we all go back to his, you know, writing about any anything about Jewish Hollywood. We go back to an empire of their own. Right. That um, was the name of it. But, right. But, but absolutely, they, you know, I, I think with the brothers, because you're right, you, like you, like you were kind of alluding to at the, at the time, assimilation was just kind of the name of the game. It was just kind of expected almost any from everybody. You know, it wasn't just from the Jews. Everyone was kind of assimilating this idea of the American melting pot, right? And the Warner Brothers just did it. That just wasn't their, wasn't part of how who they were, what they did. And I think that's, we see that in their movies too. You know, they, they tackled topics that everyone, you know, other people were afraid to tackle. I think this was just a part of their fearlessness. They didn't see any reason to, to be anything other than who they were. And, you know, this goes all the way back, you know, to the, to the teens. And I, you know, I, one story that really surprised me that I came across was Sam's wife before they died. They had a hard time getting a loan for a house and they, they are even getting a realtor to show them homes. And they finally were able to get a realtor to show them homes when they saw his wife's crucifix. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're, they're, you know, it's, they were fearless, but it was like, there were constant reminders like this, these little, you know, I guess today we call them like microaggressions, right? Where it's like, they might not be outright saying anything, but they're making some assumptions and yeah, they had a uphill, you know, being, it had its struggles because, it, you know, they had a hard time getting loans in the twenties and they met a guy um, named Motley Flint that was able to get them some loans in Los Angeles and help them expand their studio. They're the big expansion from when they had the Bronson studios to when they bought first national and Burbank, where it is now that the loans that they got for that were, were all because they finally found a banker who didn't hate Jews. Um, so it was right. Yeah. I mean, so it was, it was not easy to, you know, it, it came at a, at a, at a price of struggle to, to be fearless like that during the 1920s. I want to quote from your book. You say, Warner Brothers was more than a film studio because its productions reflected the Warner Brothers brand of cultural insight and resilience that was cultivated over years of trials and failures, end quote. And that's in a capsule what we've been talking about, that they, they were fearless, but they also learned along the way and they had this resilience to just keep going. They were, they were fearless and they just fought the good fight, including prior to and, of course, during World War II with the Nazis. And they were, I think, based on your book, they were the first studio to, to pull out of Germany, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yep. Um, In 1933, yep. And they, they just didn't shy away from, uh, we talked about the Jewish background. Is it that they were cut from a different cloth than the other moguls? Because I thought, in my reading of Neil's book way back when, that they were all pretty much from the same general 
area, and yet they had a distinct worldview or a distinct personality trait that was different than Louis B. Mayer and some of the other moguls at the time. Yeah, that, that's a really good question because it's like you're you're right. They they all kind of their their origins all trace back to a pretty close area, right? So it's not necessarily that they were cut from a different cloth. I think it's just I think they all had their own personalities and their their own ideas of what good entertainment was. So you know you you have. Even for all the similarities between all these founding moguls, you had, you know, somebody like Louis B. Mayer who preferred much more escapist entertainment, right? And you have, you know, the Warners who are just kind of the opposite end of that. You know, mm-hmm. they, they, they like addressing the culture as opposed to escaping from it. And, you know, I think that's why each studio seemed to have its own house style, its own type of movie. You know, you look at a gangster film or a Western or a comedy at Paramount, MGM, and Warner Brothers, or RKO, or wherever, United Artists, you know, they're all going to have a different flair. And I think, you know, within that, you see the the powers that be all have a different sense of what entertainment is. And for the Warner Brothers, this goes back to their idea. And really, it's Harry Warner, who was really, by the teens and 20s, was really pushing the idea of movies as a way to educate, and movies as a way to draw attention to things, to expand our minds, and to challenge us. And he beat that drum his whole life, asking, you know, trying to show that movies are not just fun. They're actually really important because they can expand us in so many ways. After researching and writing the book, did you come away with a different thought as to the impact of the Warner Brothers? Were you surprised by what you discovered and wrote about, and therefore your attitude and, and thoughts of them changed after completing the book? Well, or, actually, or individual or individual Warners as well, not just the Warner Brothers in general. Yeah, well, I certainly feel that I understand all the brothers a lot more. I mean, naturally, just spending the time with the material. You know, I don't know if there was, I, I feel like just, I guess, what's the best way to answer it? I, you know, there wasn't a whole lot that I was necessarily surprised, you know, cha- that changed how I felt about them. I mean, I, I found, like I said, I found more positive material on Jack than I expected. <laughs> right. Um yeah, because you, know, you hear all I, kinds of stories. I was about afraid him. I was going to find something that was going to make me dislike Harry, but no, apparently he's still a saint. I think what what really surprised me the most actually was was the early early years. You know, kind of like I was alluding to in the quote that you read. So many failures. You know, they 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 lost everything and had to bow out of the film business multiple times. I mean, between 1905 and 1923, well, just, part of that was based on Edison's. Yep. dominance, right? Yep. By the 19 teens, once they once they got into distribution is when Edison clapped down on them. So they got shot down once, maybe twice by the trust. I know once for sure, a couple other times it was just they ran out of money, you know, so they started, you know, just in, in exhibition and just showing movies and they got into distribution. And by the mid teens, they were trying to, to produce their own movies and each one of these came with its own set of struggles and failures and things they learned along the way. And that's that's why it's important to, to note that by 1923, when they incorporated, they, they were, I mean, they were kind of the new young guns in town in a sense, but they were also old pros by then. You know, they had they had weathered Edison, they had weathered bankruptcy, they had started and lost companies, they had theater chains, they had been threatened. I mean, they they had went through so much. So by 1923, they were really ready to roll. What was the connection with the mob 
and Warner Brothers and obviously the other studios as well during that period of time in Hollywood from your research and writing? Well, the mobs, so you're talking like the 30s? Yes. Because, so, yeah, he, so because they, you did have a lawyer, a Jerry, is it Giesler or Geisler? Yeah, he shows up in there. Yeah, he's a lawyer to the stars, but he's a fixer. And there's others that I'm spacing his name at the moment, but he was a major union guy. That may have been more in the 40s. I'm, I just can't think of his name at the moment. Yes. Yes. So there, yeah. Well, yeah, there was the uprisings on the lot, which their their head of security, his name, goofy name, Blaney Matthews, he, he was... He seems like he was either he was he was an an investigator for the LA the Los Angeles District Attorney's Office and was very much a fixer on the lot. But then yeah, there was labor uprisings. There was really what the biggest connection was, and it really wasn't. Uh, it was it was more of an adversarial one, which was a guy named Willie Byoff, which is a perfect name for a mobster <laughs> union boss that's trying to get bought off to to stop strikes. But from the 30s, in, in the 30s, he was trying to take on unions. And then the ones he did take on, basically, he, you know, he would have the studio moguls. It wasn't just Warner Brothers. It was Harry Cohen. It was everybody else would pay him to ensure that the, the union workers kept working and they didn't strike. So the, this landed in a federal investigation in the 30, late 30s and early 40s. There was some inquiries and some testimonies, and Harry and Albert both testified about being uh, approached by the mob and being kind of shaken down like this, and you know having to pay, you know, buy off, Willie buy off, and so, buy off, so, buy yeah. off. In other words, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And it, it got ugly. I mean, they were. I mean, you know, the investigators, you know, they were trying to prosecute something and they would go after Harry and they would say, you know, oh, why didn't you just call the authorities? He's like, well, because I, I thought they would kill me um, because that's what these guys, I mean, Willie, there's stories I found in the newspaper of of Byoff and some of his cronies literally killing anybody who's trying to start a rival union. Some of these people he would kill himself. So uh, no question that the Warners knew this history of this guy. And they were, yeah, they were terrified. I think Betty Warner, Harry's daughter, told tells a story of a, of a letter that came to the house, basically threatening, like, you know, we're going to kill all of you, and here's how we're going to dispose of the bodies if you, um, mm -hmm. you know, go public with this. So it was, it was pretty ugly. In those days, it's different now. Obviously, security is much more thought of. But in those days, as studio heads, did they have their own security? Yeah, so they had they had security, but it's you know it's it's interesting. This is a great question because in my mind I keep going back and forth between was there security just kind of like some Barney Fife dude sitting at a gate, <laughs> right? Or or was it more serious than that? And I feel like at Warner Brothers they had a little bit of both. I think by the 1940s, when when you have Blaney Matthews there, he is he is really, really, really serious. And I found interviews of writers and people that worked on the lot that had mentioned him and they mentioned him as running the Warner Brothers Gestapo. So like they like so apparently Blaney's security force was pretty intense. Interesting choice of words given the fact that the Warner Brothers were Jewish. Right. Right. It was. It was. And I'm trying to remember who now I'm forgetting which writer had that. It might have been John Howard Lawson. But it's it's in the book. I forgot what writer used that, but used that actual description. In so the they 40s. they ran a tight ship there because of concerns. They did. 
They did. So it was it was a pretty tight lot. And that's also why once you have the uprisings in the 40s, right at the end of World War II, they th- that's why the big riots happened at Warner Brothers, because that's where you had a security force that was basically, you know, roaming and they were they were looking for fights and they were they were armed and ready to do it. Interesting. Before I let you go, was there some relationship between the Warners, maybe specifically Jack and Harry and Walt Disney, who was the exception to the moguls at that time? He was obviously not Jewish. Was there a relationship? You know, that's a I never I didn't come up with a lot of direct communication between those two. I know he's he had come up in conversation. The only things I had ever seen, it just he's just mentioned in passing. And it was from what from what I can remember, it's usually positive. I don't think there was any issues. I don't but I just don't know. I, I think he was just so different from what they did, because mm-hmm. I know one question I had, I did a presentation when I was still working on this at at, at UW Madison. And somebody asked about, you know, you can't think of Warner Brothers without thinking about animation. And, you know, somebody might ask, well, you don't cover a ton of animation in the book. And that's because the Warner Brothers truly did not care about their animation unit. In fact, at one point, they they thought, uh, I think it was Jack, thought that Mickey Mouse was their character. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, the, so I found some stories from some of the writers who worked on, you know, in the 20s, their animation unit was, you know, they called it, the animators called it the Termite Terrace because it was just like the worst building on the lot. <laughs> and I think maybe, for, for you know, if there's any reason why they, they didn't have a lot to say about Disney, I think it's just because he was animation and they just, that wasn't what their interest was, even their own animators. <laughs> After finishing the book, what would you like readers to take away as the most salient point about the Warner Brothers in general or Harry, Jack, or the other two? Really, what I think, you know, the through line for me you know, started before the book. And it's really just with Harry Warner that, you know, I wanted to highlight Harry Warner more so than any other book. But I think what he tried to do is what I what I was looking to learn and what I want other people to learn is that how movies can be, you know, they set a perfect example of how movies can be entertaining, but also engaging and challenging. And, and these movies don't have to be one or the other. They don't have to be, you know, preachy and challenging or just fun and entertaining. They can actually be entertaining and enriching. And in today's um, and world, a lot of movies are just preachy without being entertaining. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the Warner Brothers, I think we can go back through most of their history and see a template for how that can be done. That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Chris Yogurst. He is author of The Warner Brothers, not Warner Brothers, The Warner Brothers, because there's four of them. And it's published by University Press of Kentucky. It's available right now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all the usual places. And for everything about Chris Yogurst, go to Chris Yogurst, that's Y-O-G-E-R-S-T, chrisyogurst.com. You can follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And Chris, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.